and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast, and 2024, hopefully it isn't already terrible. We are starting off the new year by looking back at the old year, by uh, talking about Miyazaki's final film, for real this time, probably, uh, The Boy and the Heron. With me to discuss this new theatrical release uh, are Sai and Tony. Hi, I'm Sai, and I'm here to discuss the theatrical release. Um, I am a an editor here at Anime Feminist, as well as the resident idol lover. Still keeping it going in 2024, y'all. Hi, I'm Tony. I'm an editor at Anime Feminist, um, and I feel like, unfortunately, my brand has become resident. Um, this seinen is good, actually of Anime Feminist, which is a brand that I am trying to let go of. Um, you can find me on uh, all platforms at Poet Pedagogue. Oh, shoot. I didn't actually introduce myself. I, did I? I, uh, I, hey, I'm Brad. <laughs> I was like, I didn't either. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, Y'all know where to find hey, us. I'm Bry Kaiser. Uh, yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, I'm the daily operations manager here at Anifem uh, and uh, content editor you can find me on Blue Sky at Road of Rye. I do things occasionally. I, I'm at Pixelated Lenses. I'm still on Twitter somehow. <laughs> well, uh, as I mentioned up top, we are talking about The Boy and the Heron, which is the first movie Hayao Miyazaki has directed since 2012's The Wind Rises, which was previously going to be his final film. Uh, I hope all of you at home have seen the Miyazaki Cat comic because it's real and it lives in my heart. It's truly iconic. It's very good. Yep. And But this is actually the first time that we've talked about a Ghibli film on the Anifem podcast, period, I think, except maybe in passing. So before we get into it properly, let's uh, do a quick temperature check, I guess. Uh, what are y'all's favorite uh, Ghibli film and when did you get into... Or your favorite Miyazaki film, generally. This will be relevant later. Okay. Okay, so I'll start off with my favorite Ghibli film is When Marnie Was There. Um, I love it. Okay. Deep cuts. It's, it's, oh my God, it's my favorite. And every, every time I say it, people are like, wow, really? And I'm like, yeah, because I'm a person of taste. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> It's true. I feel like a lot of people were disappointed when the marketing made it look really gay, and that's just not the kind of story it is. It's not that kind of story, but as a fellow asthmatic, I really relate to Anna. Like, or I'm sorry, I just called her the frozen girl's name, Anna. Let's put some respect on it, Anna. I relate to her, and yeah, it's not gay, but like, you know, the gay is in our hearts. <laughs> I'm gagged. Uh, I'm looking at the poster. They're literally like back to back holding hands on a beach. Yeah, I I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but like Tony, there's a reason it's not gay. Yeah. Mm, I'm, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh oh yeah, Tony. Uh, there's a big reason you don't want this one to be gay. It'd be okay. Taste. Noted. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then obviously, like because I'm a tastemaker, my favorite Miyazaki film is Kiki's Delivery Service eternal it's very good it's very good <laughs> i grew up with nausicaa the valley of the wind and i loved it so much because i was a little environmentalist um like a little bit insufferable in it baby. um baby environmentalist and i think as i've grown up uh i've really grown to appreciate spirited away um i think i relate to it really hard especially as somebody who's moved from like, you know, one place to another. Like, I moved from the Bay Area to New York City, and I felt a lot like Chihiro. And I think that, you know, the I know it's the basic answer. I know it's the one that everyone says. But I genuinely think it's a masterpiece. And I um, love everything that it has to say about um, women's labor, about growing up, about being there and supporting your friends. It's just... It's it's so precious to me and special to me. It's a wonderful film. I I mean, I, I also have a lot of special feelings about Spirited Away, uh, particularly because when I saw it in theaters, I was, which was like the first time an anime movie had ever come to my very small 50,000 person town. 
uh, that was the summer of having big do I want them or do I want to be them crushes on both Haku and uh, Kenichi Joji. So, like, Spirited Away holds a special place in my heart. Oh, yeah. Oh, Haku oh, is yeah. <laughs> every... I feel like Haku is so many people's first, like, anime crush. Like, he was certainly yeah. my first anime crush. And I didn't even have the language I, I to describe th- it. Yeah, because yeah. look at him. I do think I, the difference is, is Haku the human boy your first anime crush or is Haku the dragon boy your first anime crush mm. if you know me you know which mm. one it is <laughs> a tastemaker I'm just saying that, I see that dragon fucks <laughs> like, oh. that dragon is I hot. see that you too are a man of culture dragon's hot <laughs> anyway <laughs> continuing um, no but my, my favorite Miyazaki movie is probably the Castle of Cagliostro, which is one of my favorite films of all time. I think it's just about a perfect fairy tale. Um, it's it's simple. The art style has aged beautifully. The slapstick is amazing. It's full of heartwarming. Um, I really enjoy the manga entertainment dub. It, it gets sort of uh, it's sort of divisive among Lupin franchise fans because it's so much softer than a lot of the canon. But I think it's both a wonderful film on its own and a really sweet, gentle kind of last job send off for the character. And I don't know. I think it's, I think it's just perfect at being what it is. It's a wonderful film that more people should watch. I love we can that. have that. And we can have woman called Fujiko Mine. We don't have to choose. It's true. It's a huge franchise. There's been about 60 different Lupin characterizations. It's fine. It's fine. Did either have either of you seen other uh, Miyazaki films in theaters besides this one? I yeah, I, I guess mm. Ponyo, uh, and I did see the English dub with Miley Cyrus's like. I did uh, too. Okay, okay. Oh my Which God. it slaps. I'm still. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna state that right now. I love watching Ghibli films dubbed. I yeah. really, really do. Like I imprinted so hard on Kirsten Dunst as Kiki. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is immovable. Mm. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and okay. So, so speaking of that, I, I know this might be going to ha- How did we watch this Miyazaki feature? From- I watched it dubbed. Um, and it was funny because I, I wasn't originally planning to, but this it was the only showing that I like could make with my friends. It's the only ones they could make and I could make. And I I didn't I didn't mind the dub. I thought the dub was really, really well acted. Like I was very impressed. Um and, and, and you know, Studio Ghibli movies really have a long history of having very good dubs. I mean, if I remember right, Neil Gaiman was involved in the script writing for the for the Princess Mononoke dub. And then like He did. He did um he did the localization script, yeah. Which is part of probably why that localization is so damn good. No, no. I, I mean, I agree with you. I love Ghibli dubs. I, I think, and I, I do think they're sort of films with stunt casting that actually make their stunt casting bother to voice act, which is not the case, um, especially for a lot of 2000s animated films. I'm looking at you, DreamWorks. I'm looking at you directly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I, I do think, like, Ghibli dubs, and especially a lot of Miyazaki's films, like, there is a sense of, like, gravity because they are actors, and they're not just, like, some guy coming in to give us, you know, a tepid reading as Mario, <clears throat> you know, you, you know, to name a movie this year that had some guy coming in to, you know, just, just, you know, give us the most... Do 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 do. Give us nothing. Just saying. Yeah. Giving us Mm -hmm. nothing. Yeah. Lorenzo Music didn't die for this. Yeah. Like Miyazaki films, they are here to serve, and they do. I remember (laughs) watching Only Yesterday with Dev Patel as um, I watched it in theaters with Dev Patel as the the love interest, I believe. And huh. that probably launched my crush on Dev Patel, just his voice. Mm. Mm. That good choices, good decisions. Yeah. Wait, so did we all watch it dubbed? I, because yeah. I did. Yeah, I watched yeah. it dubbed as well. Oh, no, no, no. The moment that I knew Robert Pattinson was gonna be that gray heron, yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, so I guess none of us could speak to the. He Japanese really hammed it up. Yeah. 
He like hammed it the fuck He's up. He's perfect. He was fantastic. It there is um there's a really wonderful paste article um that's just about how they put this dub together and the amount of care and communication with um the Japanese studio that they did and it's just absolutely so sweet because part of this being uh, me, a sort of send off to Miyazaki's career is that they brought in a lot of actors from previous films and they attempted to replicate that where they could for the English dub. So like um, Howell's actor plays Christian, uh, a Christian dad in ja- excuse me yeah yeah in Japanese and they brought him back. Well, he it's. Like, specifically, they the Japanese side said, we got Howell's actor to come back and play Mahito's dad in Japanese. So they also went and got Christian Bale to play his dad in English. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were just going to call him Christian <laughs> Mahito's dad. And I was like, we put some respect on Christian Bale. Okay. Sorry. I, sorry. Yes. Someone's a little passionate. <laughs> and, and there's a very cute anecdote about how Robert... Pattinson came in like the first day and had a little notes app on his phone where he basically got the voice as it's finalized in the film already before they started recording and that because he was so excited about it like it's really cute there's just a vibrant amount of love in this dub you can feel the passion I do think maybe some of the like granny chatter the the auntie stuff doesn't necessarily translate orally the way it might in the original Japanese and maybe sounds a little bit that that's the only place that I would point to that maybe sounds a little bit arguably stiff at points uh, I, I will defend these little grandma maids with my life I love them so much <laughs> I love them so much They're, I love uh, okay I'm getting ahead of myself we haven't even talked about like what this movie's even about <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, one more note, and then we will get into the uh, we'll get into the summary. There was a lot of talk before the movie came out uh, because the the Japanese title of the film is "How Do You Live," and that's the name of a book uh, in the in the narrative that Mahito receives from his mother, and it's sort of re- you know it's relevant to the theme is. Like a lot of Miyazaki movies, it's an anti-war film. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, these. it's about conflict and how conflict arises because of how people feel like they, what people feel like they have to do to live, right? Uh, but, and so when it, uh, when it came out in English, uh, everybody was up in arms that the English title is The Boy and the Heron, which is much less evocative on its face, I think a lot of people felt like. Uh, and that Paste article I referenced earlier sort of demystified that finally that it was actually a request um from the japanese studio because how do you live is an actual novel um yes. in japan it's a real novel it's a 1937 that Mahito, uh, is reading actually yes yeah. mm-hmm. and it is not and people apparently in japan were constantly asking if this movie was an adaptation of this book so th- there was a request that the title be changed for an international market. And the reason they ended up on The Boy and the Heron is uh, to try to evoke some of the archetypal fairy tale nature of the story of the film. And mm. I, I think The Boy... And now you know. I think The Boy and the Heron is actually a much more serviceable title because while How Do You Live has an English translation, it was released in 2021 through Penguin... Uh, I think most people don't know that. Also, how do you live doesn't necessarily... What does that mean to an English-speaking uh, audience that, like, might be coming from mainstream or likely coming from mainstream? And this is, like, their one touchstone into Japanese animated films. It, Yeah, Boy in the Herons, it is ultimately kind of better. I, I don't agree. I, I, like, yeah. I like the how do you live partially because I think it captures a lot of the thematic ideas in the film, like... So much of the film is like, what what do you take with you that the the previous generation is trying to like impart upon you, and what do you kind of let go of, right? And so much, I I also do think it's kind of funny. Like, I mean, Vestanet, of course, you know, at Vestanet on Twitter made this meme that was like superimposed, uh, t- took the poster and then put the and said, "Dang, I I I'm." shocked at the action that the localization choices and it says damn you live like this and 
Okay. I just think <laughs> pitch perfect meme. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I quite like How Do You Live? And um, yeah, I'm, I'm still, I still, I also think it captures the vagueness of it, captures the surreality of the movie because it is such a strange, weird fucking movie, um, which is one of the things I it's... really like about it. Yeah, I do think it yeah. is nice that they do have a title that separates it from the book so that because I I do mm. think a lot of people still think it's an adaptation of the book when they are completely separate things. It's it's less of an adaptation of How Do You Live than Naked Lunch, the Cronenberg film is of Naked Lunch, the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So I, I think it's pretty clear from the chatter up to this point that we all really love the film and think you should see it. So from here on in, the discussion will be spoiler laden. Uh, if you haven't seen the film and you plan to, please go do that and then come back because it really is a movie that benefits from the surprise of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, going in uh, going in an unknowing really heightens the experience for sure. This movie just I had no idea what was going to happen next at any point in the movie whatsoever. I had literally no idea what was going to happen next ever. Ever. I certainly didn't expect a little man to pop out of the heron. Oh my god. I I would be real. Moment. Didn't ex- didn't expect Robert Pattinson to be so scrungly in this one. Like it's just so the so little good. face. I'm, I'm so happy for the degree to which Robert Pattinson has flourished into his weird little guy era. It's great. It's I'm so great. happy for him, honestly. All right, brief summary. Uh, in case you didn't listen to my warnings or you haven't seen the film for a minute and need a refresher, uh, so this film takes place. During the late stages of World War II and the Pacific War, um, Mahito is living in Tokyo when his mother is killed in a firebombing because uh, she is in a hospital that gets bombed. And so uh, he and his father move to the countryside to live with uh, his aunt, who is also his father's new bride and is pregnant. So Mahito is going through it. As he arrives at the house, he discovers that there is uh, an old building that was apparently left there by one of his uh, predecessors and has been blocked off because it's dangerous and people disappear there. And he's in the process of grieving his mother's death. Uh, he keeps seeing a, a heron out on the water that is apparently a guardian of the land and keeps calling to him for reasons he's not sure about. It's an isekai. It is. Sure is. It is. It's really good. It's really, and it's a really well done one. Take notes, Shield Hero. Yeah. No, I think it was D who went to the movie and then uh, uh, skeeted afterwards. Uh, Gee, do you think that Miyazaki is maybe uh, annoyed at all of the wish fulfillment god mode isekai that have been popular lately? Yeah, and I like, think the thing it, is right, like with isekai. Isekai has such potential to be, like, these really transformative, interesting stories about, like, alternate worlds. Like, similar to, like, you know, what we get when we read something like Ursula K. Le Guin with the Left Heart of Darkness, you know, and those visiting other world, like, literal other worlds or, like, any other, like, fantasy literature. But instead, it's these kind of boilerplate, like, garbage, you know, video game bullshit and I really feel like The Boy and the Heron brings us back to the possibility, you know, and, and what made me love Isekai so much, like, you know, it almost reminded me a little bit of when I would read The Subtle Knife, you know, in the, like, Philip Pullman Dark Materials trilogy and just how thrilling that was when I was a kid, just because I never knew what mm-hmm. the next yeah. world would bring. I do want to call you out and say that, like, shonen and male-centered Isekai has lost its path, but there is a lot of like isekai that have female protagonists that have not 
forgotten what it is to be a powerful story um mm. i think I'm, i think there is still that emphasis on the comfort narrative right now in jose muke isekai i think certainly not um boy in the heron is echoing back to 90s isekai which was almost exclusively a, a girl aimed genre with titles like escaflone and fushigi yugi and magic knight ray earth where it those were also coming of age there and back again stories where this other world is wondrous, but it's also dangerous and not necessarily, you know, a wish fulfillment location for the protagonist. It's refreshing for that alone, honestly, in some ways, this sense, this sense of danger about an other world, you know, and, and a protagonist who is vulnerable. Yeah. It is interesting, though, because at the end of the movie, the protagonist does end up getting offered basically to become the god of this new world and stay there forever, right? That's kind of the implication, if I understand right. Um, yeah, well, and, and but he he explicitly rejects it as mm-hmm. something that that isn't valuable, you know, as as something that that will be detrimental to him to have this this sort of stasis where he's in control of everything and he can build whatever world he likes and it can be a utopia but you know it it won't be real you know what's real is taking the the pain of his experiences and going forward and you and you know growing through those experiences to form connections with people he loves well well, and there's also the fact of like mahito recognizing that like he has with him within him like i think he explicitly says the word malice Mm. And that, like, mm-hmm. you know, he understands that, like, he's got to, he has growing to do that, like, has to go beyond creating his own world. Like, the world he's got to engage in, he, he needs to kind of, you know, calling back to, like, when he when he does that very brutal scene of self-inflicting um, harm on himself with the rock. Um, like, he's got to, you know, he he needs he he wants to become someone who grows past that and i think that's also really interesting yeah no i think that's that's a really good point that that line is so impactful because i think that's also and i i don't think it's just about and this is all exclusively to call out what the isekai genre has become you know i think that's a viable read and not the only one but it's it's also you know a lot of that wish fulfillment fantasy in a genre that's so very full with ends justified the means slavery among other things this idea that this one person could start over in a new world and they'll make it perfect with no corruption or individual problems whatsoever yeah and it's interesting because even the the when the parakeet king tries to kind of take over right and tries to take on that god role Mm -hmm. and the parakeet like, the whole Parakeet Kingdom sequences often felt like a little bit of a collective hallucination. Like, I was like, what is going on? Oh, my goodness. Because, like, we, we, we don't really get... Ex- like, the world of this movie is very strange. Like, it almost feels like a barren world except for the Parakeet Kingdom. Almost like all of the people have, like, died... Like, I mean, we open to a graveyard, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have the Anyways. pelicans who are like, we have the pelicans who are like also in the act of trying to live while being put in a world where they are dying at the graveyard. Right. Right. I, I wasn't. Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the pelicans have been like, trans. they've been transported to this world. Um, mm. And they're just like, they're hungry. And like, unlike the parakeets who have found a way to survive, the pelicans really haven't. <laughs> so like, it, it is that dying world. Like, they are from a world where they once lived, and now they're here, and like, they're just trying to survive in a world where there's no food for them, except um, for souls. So it is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They eat Miyazaki's yeah, I... little guys. <laughs> they eat Miyazaki's oh, little guys. The wa- Cause you water, can tra- water, I, I love them the so water. Much. I like I like cried during during the scene where Mahito was like first of all I was crying the whole like first half hour of the movie it was just so like so much and then especially during the scene where Mahito first encounters the Wada Wada and like is like well not first encounters but is like first sees one floating up into the heavens like there was something about that scene that was really really impactful to me um 
I, I almost wonder whether it's because it's like kind of the first moment that he has to kind of like rest and process that like, hey, I'm in this new world. Well, and it's kind of this big, it's kind of a big encounter with life, right? Like, because mm. mm-hmm. this movie, I like, I think it's easy to compare this movie to a lot of other Ghibli films. But the thing that kept coming back to me was Dante's Inferno and Purgatory. Mm. Because, right. like, he's kind of in this, like, you know, and he's really moved by this, like, act of life and, like, this cycle of death where the pelicans are consuming the warawara. <laughs> and, like, right. there's really nothing that can be done. There's, like, one person who can stop mm. it. Who <laughs> um, would be stronger, you know, the, uh, the the vicious cycle of violence born of desperation or one really hot woman? Yeah. <laughs> can we call her hot? Can we call her hot giving the reveal of who she is? Can, can we wait, call wait, wait, her? wait, well, wait, wait, which, which one are we talking about? Are we talking about Kiriko or are we talking about uh, Hime? Hime. We're talking about the literal hot one. Kiriko. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Kiriko. Oh, okay. I was referencing Hime, who is also. No, no. Hime, Hime is a teenage girl. She's adorable. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say. Kiriko is hot. But she's Kiriko hot in the super... set. But Hime is literally Kiriko's hot super... with flames. I think that's what Sai was saying, right? Right. Yeah, I was referencing. Fair, yeah, fair. I stomped on your good pun. Yeah, no, but yeah. like, yeah, like we have Kiri- we have Kiriko who can kind of help, and then we have Himi who, like, obviously, she gets her like sailor uh, Mars on, and is just like some flames. You know, I'm doing a lot of voguing, which doesn't really work well on a <laughs> podcast. But just know I'm voguing like I'm I'm a firebender. Um, and but like, there's really no one else in this kind of world of like life and death. Um, except for a hot bird king, a grunkle, and a bunch of birds that are very, very hilariously hungry at some points. Like, there is a scene where one is sharpening his knife and, like, looking at Mahito, and he's like, gonna eat ya. But, like, yeah, this world's kind of, <laughs> you're right, Tony, like, this world is very devoid of life in, in a kind of beautiful way and in a really haunting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it very, feels very yes. much like the transitional space, like that kind of um, like you were saying, the purgatory almost, or I don't know. I'm like thinking of like what like a Buddhist equivalent, like this, like my my read on it was that like it's the space where souls go between lives, right? It definitely feels like that liminal space, and like the movie really plays with liminality in a really interesting way because because it's so depopulated, like. There's just these big sprawling kind of times of nothing where it's just, it's just Mahito in the scenery and, and the heron. We can't forget, we can't forget my guy, the heron. <laughs> hot mess heron, hot mess bird. And it's like, especially in that opening scene with the Wada Wada, it's, it's hard not to, uh, it feels almost like overstating it, right? To, to be like, how much is this, uh, this scene specifically, uh going full allegory mode hmm. about world about world war 2 there's a lot of i think one of the things that i kept on thinking to myself as as i was watching this movie is that spirited away i feel like the allegory and the symbolism is really really clear like i the the water dragon and the way that the, it's full of the river spirit and the way it's full of garbage represents the way you know that our society treats the environment right and you know blah blah blah. it's very very clear symbolism right and this movie felt a lot less like obvious in its allegories right like it felt almost a little bit more of a like personal in that sense because it felt like it felt feels like there's a key to this film that probably exists in Miyazaki's head for what it represents about his life um, it almost feels like a dream that he didn't just put on screen. Um, not, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in like an interesting way. But none of us are ever gonna see that key, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we could make a whole bunch of guesses about like what it might mean about like Miyazaki's life or about like his interpretation of World War Two. But there were a lot of moments, right, like where I was just like, "What is what? What does this mean? I don't know." I I can say that one of the things to keep in mind, and this comes from IndieWire, um, in an article by Bill Desowitz. Thank you, Bill. That it is talk. Uh, one of the things that affected this film was um, Takahata Isao's death in 2018. 
And if that name isn't familiar, Takahata Isao was the co-founder of Studio Ghibli. He and Miyazaki had a very close relationship, obviously, because they founded this, you know, really influential um, studio that also has a lot of love put into it. So originally... And worked together on uh, Loop on the Third Part One before they uh, before they founded the theater. Like, their Yeah. Or before they founded the studio. Like, their careers were tightly intertwined. Yeah. And so, like, one of the things that... Like, there were revisions after um, Isao's death because... The one of the focus, the original focus was going to be on the grand uncle and Mahito, and it became between Mahito and the heron more in like kind of that dynamic more than the grand uncle kind of taking the the you know main kind of bigger role. And a lot of Miyazaki's memories of their storytelling also kind of come into play. So I think like that's at play. But you're right, the allegory kind of it kind of feels like a dream. It feels like the kind of dream that I would think I would have kind of in the last moments before you go on whatever to happens next. Like it kind of has that weird out of time feeling that I think is also really powerful. Yeah. Oh, I, I want to correct myself from earlier in the podcast. Um, the dub article I was referencing is also from IndieWire. It's not paste. Uh, but no, I think... Yeah, I, I don't mean to say that there is, like, one tight allegory that runs through this entire film, because I think definitely uh, there are folks who have proposed it as, like, these are sort of, the characters sort of represent folks that represent uh, folks Miyazaki worked with, you know, uh, with Takahata as the heron, uh, for example, and I think there's there's an element to that. I think, certainly, I walked away from that last uh, scene feeling with um the magician feeling like oh so miyazaki's finally apologizing to goro cool wait the scene with the, you <laughs> mean when it. when goro you mean the like mahito walking away from the magi- from the magician being representative of goro walking away from um studio ghibli or or walking away from miyazaki's legacy sort of thing no walking away from his kind of shitty dad <laughs> Sorry, and, and it being the right thing to do yeah. and like yeah, Goro was mean. a producer on this film <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to call Miyazaki shitty but like he's not I would say he's maybe not he's... the kindest father everything I know about his relationship with Goro makes me feel horrible for Goro frankly everything I know about Miyazaki as a director speaks to me of this man made beautiful art and um wow yeah yeah because yeah. that that last scene where he does walk away, it did feel a little personal. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it is it is interesting because one internet theory that's being positive is this like, is this is like a call out of his son, a y'all call out. <laughs> this eighty two year old man has so many other things to do. <laughs> like that's ridiculous. I think I saw that drifting around somewhere on Twitter, and like a lot of things on Twitter, I just disregard it because <laughs> don't be. Wait, so these people thought it was like saying negative things about Gordo? Yeah, that's and such like, a strange know. reading. I don't understand. It's- and it's it's okay that not everyone is media literate about certain things, and like I don't mean that in a <laughs> negative way. Like it is okay to have interpretations. I just don't think that's one. Well, I was going to think of say like I also do wonder whether like all these very personal readings right of the film maybe are missing something that the film might be trying to say about war, right? Or about like oh, it's yeah, <laughs> you know, like in in trying to like read this onto like some like psychological psychoanalytic aspect of Miyazaki's relationship with his family and blah 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 blah. are we missing like what is directly in the text which is that this kid is processing like living with you know the death of his mother trying to figure out who he's going to be you know in a society that is very very much built around war at the time and surviving war and dealing with war (laughs) and like maybe doesn't necessarily like what he's seeing of like how adults are you know i i don't know like what what does what does the parakeet kingdom represent by the like about japanese society you you get what i'm saying right right yeah no i mean i mean i think 
I think it can be both, like, easily, especially in a film that is so dreamlike and uh, rambling is the wrong word, but, like, episodic, uh, you know, we were talking about the Green Knight the other uh, day. It has that sort of uh, Mm -hmm. quest-like structure where it's it's these various, uh, not anecdotes, uh, it it feels like it's hitting steps in, yeah. Vignettes. Yeah, yeah. Because it, um, it feels but, like each uh, vignette is kind of a step forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I definitely think you can read the structure of the fantasy world as, like, every, uh, every step Mahito goes up is just f- dressing up the same, the, that core brutality and desperation that we see with the pelicans, and we've just put more hats on it and made it look fancier and put order around it. Um as oh wow! Up, I never thought of it that way. Actually, like the idea that the kind of this the plight of the pelicans being forced into this new world and starving is like, like almost like a key to understanding the rest of the film. I've never thought of it. I didn't mm. think of it at all that way. But that's such an interesting read. Yeah, because I think once you realize that the pelicans, like, and there's that pelican that like dies. Um, and Mahi Defoe Pelican. Yeah. And like it, it, it even says, I think it, it says so much like we're just hungry and like it, we're in a world that we're not meant to exist in. Um, and that is why they fight is like they just they just really, they, you know, they just want to exist like um, they but but they're kind of these harbingers of death. And that's kind of what they have gotten attached to, which is really ironic because pelicans largely symbolize healing and renewal. Um, They are often symbols of like, they're often very positive symbols with a lot of mysticism around them, depending on cultures. So it's really interesting to see them positioned as like death bringers. And, uh, but like, it's the situation they've been put in. Like, and, and I do think when you compare that with like the real world situation happening in the movie of, you know, World War Two, where like, you know, Japan has a much different relationship to that than I would say like Americans, you know, who came out part of the victors. Like victors always have very different relationships to harm, even if a different group. And I mean, like, you know, we know Imperial Japan did really horrific things during World War Two, but like the citizens, like Mahito and his mother and his aunt, they didn't you know, they were just caught up in it. Like they were complicit by proxy of being in the wrong country. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think when you, I think when you pull that Pelican metaphor in, yeah. Oh yeah. That's a spice of life. Well, and I think what makes it, it so rich is that is it doesn't map, it doesn't map cleanly into like, and the Pelicans are the Americans and the, the Wadawada are the nation of Japan. Cause like, it, like there is that element of it is like the Americans are the aggressors and committed horrific acts of violence against the Japanese people. But there's also, you know, Mahito's dad is a war profiteer. And so he's in some ways just as culpable in, in causing these innocent civilian deaths. Yeah. Everyone mm. kind of suffers. Did, uh, did either of you see the wind rises? I did. I, yes. I haven't. It, uh, it's so the war, the wind rises is a semi biographical film about the man who, uh, was an aeronautics engineer, a very passionate one, uh, um, who ended up Hori- designing Hori- the plane Koshi that became Jiro? the Zero Bomber. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And and it's it's very much... I cried when I saw that film in theaters. Um, it's very much Miyazaki sort of looking back on his legacy and sort of about how when you... You know, stepping back from the the shiny idealism of the process of making art for art's sake and looking at cultural impact of things that you've made. And I think there are remnants of that here through Mahito's father. And, you know, once again, I'm reading his relationship with Goro into this in, in terms of him, you know, totally ignoring his grieving son as he moves uh, parts for the airplane into uh, their house and makes it part of the war machine. Well, and just yeah. like in the way that, in the way that his father just kind of reacts overall, right? Like, I'm thinking of, like, when Mahito comes home from school, has bashed the side of his head in because, like, he needed, you know, in a, in a very child logic way, an excuse for why he got 
the shit beat out of him by these other kids who clearly beat him up because he is experiencing the war and the war effort very differently. Like this kid doesn't have to volunteer. He's not having to do agricultural. Um, And like the dad's first impulse is, let me at him. I'll beat him up. And you're like, dad, please, dad. mm, Oh my God, please ask your son how he's doing. (laughs) Like, oh my God. When his dad is like, I'll take you to school in my car. That will make these other impoverished children. No, it won't. No, it won't. (laughs) When he put him in that Dotson, I was like, oh no. Oh no. (laughs) It's going to go very bad. Like it's no, no. So the kids are gonna be like, this kid's soft. <laughs> like this kid's not, this kid's not starving like how we are. This kid isn't going through the same war that we are. Um, I mean, even when like the dad has the suitcase full of, I think one of the maids was like, oh, corned beef, and like they are clearly experiencing such a different life. Um, but like, yeah, his his dad is complicit, and that's really hard to kind of. Uh, I would imagine for Mahito, that's really hard to see a bunch of the tools of war that like you know regardless of nation killed his mom yeah and i think that what's also interesting about that right is that then like i think two things like when i think of what stuck out to me so much about the first part of this movie is like as Mahito is moving through his new home just like there are these long scenes of him just wandering through this immensely ornate elaborate beautiful home right but it feels so like lonely and and anxious and like almost like like it's hard not to think in those moments like wow this this kid's fucking rich and i think like i do wonder whether like that was on purpose to like just underscore this 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 kid's really at living in the lap of luxury during like one of the most horrific moments like especially if you compare it to say the grave grave of the fireflies right which takes place in like a, a similar kind of like well if i remember right like it ends up in a more rural area right um yeah but gosh. like you can kind of think of these movies happening concurrently right like right grave of the fireflies those kids are having a very different experience and they're also escaping yeah, and I mean, into it's fantasy inevitably right informed by it Right, and those those characters are also escaping into fantasy, but like in a delusional stupor of hunger and poverty, right? <laughs> Versus Mahito, and and I think it's it's really important. I think and interesting then that when he's presented, I, I think that maybe lends another reading to when he's presented with, you know, the option to like, hey, you 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 can have control over the world, right? And he's gone on this journey where he's seen, like, a a society that's built around, like, I'm going to eat parakeets. We're not, like, I'm going to (laughs) eat the other side. I'm going to, you know, enact violence on whoever I can, you know, because I can, Um, which is, to an extent, what war is, right? It's like, who can kill more people on the other side and make them submit? You know, he chooses to be like, nah, I don't want to be the, you know, I, this is not, like, going to be the, the space that I can fix. Like, I can't fix that. Like, that's his moment of growth from where he starts the film with his first reaction to the heron being, how can I kill it? And it's not like Mahito intended for the world to, like, go bye-bye and die, right? Like, that's that's the Parakeet King's doing. Like, mm-hmm. It's just, it's more just that he didn't oh, yeah. feel like no, it was just, his responsibility a- to be the savior for it. Or he, let alone, could he even? Though I do think it's interesting that, like, from that world dying comes life again. Because, like, all the animals, they, they leave and they revert to being parakeets. Like, they they flood out and, like, yeah. And, I mean, you know, then there's the, the very tragic part that, like, tragic, but maybe not. Because, like, we there is the reveal that Himi is actually his birth mother. Um, and, like, Mahito's, like... Sis, you know you're gonna die. <laughs> like, but you know, he, he, me, he, me finds it worthwhile. Like, because she knows he'll exist. And I, there was something like that. That's what really shattered me in the movie is like him saying, very frankly, like, but you die in a fire. And her being like, I'm still gonna do it. I'm still gonna go because I know you're gonna be born. And that's enough for me. Like, I'm tearing up right now. 
Himi's such a wonderful character. And this movie is so interesting because from because like, I feel like especially in the West, Miyazaki is known as the guy who writes stories with strong heroines and like he's he's given interviews really leaning into that as as an um as something that's important to him. And like, you know, The Wind Rises has a male protagonist because it's bio- biographical and also because I think in some ways it's it is him looking back as on his work as an artist but besides that he hasn't really had a male protagonist in his film since i want to say pompoco mm-hmm. that wasn't not them. pompoco uh porco rosso porco rosso yeah porco rosso which is also a movie about war <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i mean which which i i i do understand his fascination with war because miyazaki is born in 41 and while I mean World War Two would have been the first half of his childhood about it was that's a really formative childhood to have. And that is a childhood to witness some really gruesome events and, you know, like the the kind of tragedy of when we lean into our worst and let that malice consume us. Um I mean it's 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 like if you've ever read uh Kazuo Umez's manga, like the dissolve um the the drifting classroom like oh oh okay you're working through stuff okay no yeah no that's fair isn't that an isekai too of sorts it 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 is it is is. yeah what i mean we're we're getting almost towards an hour now we haven't really talked about the female cast much which this movie really is trying to i think i think it's fighting with the fact right that a lot of it is about women as um like uh his you know his stepmother as a damsel that needs to be rescued uh, um the the fact that women are mothers and caretakers a lot by function in this in this movie i think they're they're well developed uh, um and i don't think this is a case i don't know it, it's interesting right it's it's an interesting case for what do you do with a film when you're looking at it in context of a body of work and also even if Himi is ultimately like well she's going to become his mom and die um, she is all, like the film is also really fighting her to ma- fighting to make her her own character with her own adventures and agency, you know. So, yeah, I you know thinking about like that, like the first characters you really meet, the first gaggle of characters you meet are the lovely, the lovely maids, who I don't think in the dub other than Kiriko ever get names, but they do have names. Um, they're Izumi, Utako, Eriko, and Aiko, which are like very um older names um you can tell when someone's born in like that kind of uh i guess we call it the silent generation but like that certain generation or it by like the co in a lot of names that doesn't really happen nowadays um and like we meet these like lovely caretaker maids and then you have natsuko who like her role kind of is to caretake and like help this poor boy (laughs) who you know is likes his aunt well enough but like aunt ain't mom um and i do find it interesting that the world also kind of caretakes her in return when she decides to you know isekai herself to go have her baby which like okay sis you could have left a note but i understand i i I was trying to figure out what was going on with natsuko for a lot of the movie because to be honest like the moment where she says that she hates mahito i was like what is happening? Where where did this come from? And I and I really got the sense that there was a lot of material with Natsuko that was cut from the movie. Like, you know, there's that moment where she's clearly very skilled with a bow, right? Very, very skilled with a bow. And, like, it made me wonder, like, did she have her own adventures in Isekai Land that we're not seeing, right? You know? Um, and it made me wonder, like, why... What is going on with Natsuko? What is her deal? Because I feel like I understand what's going on with Hime. I basically understand what's going on with Kiriko, but I do not understand what's going on with her. I feel like the weakest part of the movie is Natsuko. And it's not her mm. as a person. It's it's the story around her. Because when we popped up and she was pregnant in a room, I was like, wait, whoa, how'd she get here? Damn, why is she having the baby here? Um, and I was like, did mm-hmm. I miss something while I was snacking on my delicious salty popcorn? And I, 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 it does feel like something had to maybe that, cause that part was like the weakest 
kind of like vignette where I was like, what is going on? What is what is happening? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it I was love gorgeous. the scenery. Like it's it's gorgeous. But I was also like, why is this woman having her baby in this other world? Um, why? Um, and and I what I settled on is I think maybe we're not supposed to understand because life is just like that. I'd agree that Natsuko is the weakest part of the film uh, as written. Uh, I, as a character, like, I really felt a lot of empathy for her. But, yeah, she's... Um, What's your reading of her? Like, what what is your empathy that you have for her? I want to understand. Not that, not that I, not that so I like, don't, but I just want to understand your perspective on her. No, like, Natsuko is the one character where I really loved watching the dub. She is the one character where I had this feeling of, like... Is there some subtlety that didn't make it through? Um, and I don't have an answer to that. People who watched the sub, uh, if you want to tell us about that, I would love to hear it. But to me, Natsuko is a character who is struggling with so much guilt. Like, mm. she married her sister's husband. And, mm. like, it, it was... It can't have been long after the funeral. Did they meet at the funeral? Um, and you know what, when she's in her sick bed, she has, she's sort of murmuring to herself about how she didn't, how she was supposed to protect Mahito, um, Mm. and she feels like it also, apparently, you know, I think she's channeling a lot of the guilt she probably feels about marrying his dad into this failure around his injury and the fact that, like, he doesn't really like her, and that's probably hard for her, Mm. but, you know, you can't be mad at a kid, because, of course, he doesn't like her. That's mm. entirely fair for him not to like her. Mm. Um, so, I and I think, you know, she's she's running this entire household by herself, which we don't know the extent to which she was required to do so before the war. You know, probably to some extent, uh, given her prowess with the bow well, and but, all. Well, but. But, but I don't know, because, like, she has moved to that rural estate. Like, she was not necessarily residing there. Hmm. Mm. And, and so, like, right. it's probably really overwhelming for her to suddenly be in charge of this massive house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With, like, with, like, five grannies to run it. I also feel <laughs> a little bit grannies. like, boo-hoo, you have property, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay. There, there is a little oh. bit of that, but, but like, like, yes, yeah, she's better off than a lot of people who don't have than a lot of people who, who don't have any kind of means and mm-hmm. or a rich husband. But I think like the her the trauma of her situation interpersonally is still real mm-hmm. as much as it is for for Mahito, you know? Oh uh, yeah. And yeah. I like, yeah. and I do think it's the loser sister, that, right? Like, like her grief is like yeah. is not really her grief is something she has to hide to be to like to be strong to to support him, right? Well, and like, mm-hmm. who's to, yeah, to, who's to say that like she wasn't that they didn't come to an agreement without her word of like, oh, well, you can just marry her sister, like that'll be good, you know, like for all we know, like she, this, I, I, while she does have property, like it's by proxy of her husband, um, mm. you know, like I, I don't know, maybe she wouldn't have that. And I, I do feel that empathy for her because, like, she is ultimately still a woman in the 1940s. And, mm. you know, yeah, she's going through it. And it's, it, it is frustrating that we have to guess all of this because we don't know. And, like, I feel like the film spend gives us relatively little time. I don't, I don't, because at least to me, it's not a matter of Natsuko isn't action-oriented like Himi and Kiriko and therefore she's less of a good character. I think it's it's more that we get to know so much more about Kiriko and uh, Himi and their what they want to do and that with like what they want out of life even when we know them for a very brief period of time whereas because the time we get to know Natsuko before she's sort of in a magic coma it's through uh, Mahito's grief and anger at her. So she's a very remote character by design. And I feel like we never break through that, even as the film shifts to his, you know, driving desire to rescue her. Yeah. And it's a shame because I, 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 I wonder what this movie would be had Natsuko 
gotten a little bit more development because she does seem like a pretty cool person and she seems she seems to so genuinely love mahito and and i think that love is complex right like i think that love is the love of like the last remaining physical aspect of your sister like Mm. but also like i do think she genuinely loves him as like you know, nephew who's become son. She is kind of surrounded by these two really cool characters. One who is very hot, Kiriko, as we've said. And then, like, Himi, who, like, literally is the little fire fire beauty who, like, you know, like, she just... Once again, I'm voguing with my hands. That's how she does. She just fire, flames, pasha, you know? And, and yeah, it's... <laughs> And I and I don't know if maybe it was a runtime thing that they were like, oh snap, Miyazaki has almost made a like two and a half hour movie. We have got to cut something, <laughs> you know. It is already quite long. It because it is y'all listeners. It's 124 minutes. Um, and there's not a good place to go to the bathroom, so like, just be dehydrated during the film, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> I thought one thing that was interesting to me is that Mahito feels a little bit less, um, how do I put this, well-defined as a protagonist than maybe previous Miyazaki protagonists. I feel like a lot of Miyazaki protagonists kind of have, like, this set of beliefs that they are very firmly holding on to over the course of the entire movie and then get tested and they have to figure out how to hold on to those beliefs as the movie progresses. Um, I mean, obviously, Spirited Away is not that, um, but I almost felt like Mahito, to me, as I was first watching it, before this conversation, felt almost like a bit of a cipher. Like, I wasn't quite sure what um, his, like, the core of his character was, um, as much as I am used to with Miyazaki movies. But I feel like after this conversation, I feel like I've, feel like I understand what, like, all of his feelings a lot stronger than I did before, maybe. Um, especially in regards to, like, mm. his dad being a war profiteer and, like, um, his the complicated feelings he has over um, both wanting to to find and, and, like, you know, protect Natsuko, but also, like, <laughs> feeling complicated over the fact that he's kind of a source of guilt for her. Um, or rep- represents her guilt. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you all made of Mahito as a character himself. I, I, um, I, I see what you mean about like, I think definitely the film is opaque about him in some ways. Like that whole first 40 minutes or so, I think it really probably deliberately holds us at arm's length when it's being more grounded and it doesn't start to let us closer to the characters until we translate over into the other world. And I think that opacity is very different than how Miyazaki structures a lot of his other films. See, and it's, Mm. it's really interesting because to me, it was, to me, it felt clear that I was like, this is a kid who like, I, so I'm gonna get a little personal. I lost a parent as a child at 18 and that grief of not outliving your parent and of losing them in a particularly tragic way, which I did in the case of my father, um, it kind of depersonalizes you by proxy of the way that like you're kind of forced to process because like if you lose someone in a time of upheaval, you kind of don't get to be a grieving person. And like Mahito gets to grieve when he goes on this journey and kind of, because I also, I also thought of the movie as like going through the five stages of grief. Um, and like, he gets to be a person as he goes on this journey of grieving, but like he starts out very, I don't want to say blank because he's not blank, but very like muddled, I think, because like, he doesn't even know what to make of his feelings. Um, and I think, and I, I think that's kind of the beauty of this movie is seeing the character he becomes that is a much more stable like I could you could pick out bullet points about him because he starts off the movie not able to be a character because grief doesn't let you be a full person especially when you have to grieve in a time like World War II in the Pacific War like 
you know, I, 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 and, you know, not to, well, to bring today into it. I think we can see that with the current situation that uh, I'm sure is going to be still going on in 2024, uh, as we're recording this, it certainly is, of the war, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, war, of, like, how people are not able to grieve because when you are being when war is being waged on you, 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 that, that is the first part of taking away your humanity is your ability to grieve. Um, yeah, and like, I mean, at a certain point, is it even war when you're, when your op- opponents can like literally turn off your water supply? Um, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, and it, 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 like the, the deep, deep, deep dehumanization of it. Right. Um, and I think one of the things that we often, I don't think we talk about enough is like in addition to like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we also did um, you know, we firebombed so many places during World War Two. Like when I think about I mean both in Japan and in Germany, right? Like with the firebombing of Dresden, right? And which killed like God. I mean, some estimates about the firebombing of Dresden are like thirty thousand people civilians died. Some are like 100,000 civilians died. And it's like when you recognize that like what we're experiencing now is stuff that the United States has done historically so much, right? Like the murder of and, and you have the this... indiscriminate murder of civilians, right? Yeah. Um, well, and you, you have this kid who like whose mother was mm-hmm. was I, I think I think you can say like a country did war crime war crimes and also say that like everyday people like us. Mm-hmm are are also victims and like you have Mahito who's a victim of this horrific like fire is the worst way to die it is grisly it is extremely painful until it isn't and by the time it isn't it is a very horrific end like and he experienced Mm -hmm. this and like because of the nature of his world he kind of had to just like internalize it and like that's really hard for Mm -hmm. a kid um so I I, like that's kind of what I make of Mahito is like he can't be a person until he's allowed to move through that grief to reclaim his personhood. Um, because I think that's what the process of grieving is, is like a deeply depersonalizing event where like, you kind of have to find your way back to the humanity that you want to serve as the vessel for the grief inside you. I think there are, so, I, I think this film has been somewhat uh, divisive uh, on how folks come down with it. And I think that's, a testament in some ways to how many threads there are to pull at it. Um, and I, that's a, that's a way of reading it. I hadn't really thought about, but I, I think it's really moving. Yeah. I, I do. I really do appreciate that. We've brought this conversation around the movie back to the topic of war. Right. Cause it like, I think it's something that we need to be thinking about right now. And I want to see it like, and I think that it's really poignant for, for right now when we need to be, our art needs to be engaged with anti-war, you know, themes. And we need to be talking about anti-war themes in art, I think, more than ever, given, like, just the horrors we're seeing every day. And um, mm-hmm. I, it, it is interesting to me that, like, even as I was watching this movie in the middle of, like, something where I, like, you know, just, like, maybe a couple a couple weeks before I had just gone to a big protest you know around I I, I uh, you know fighting against genocide in Gaza because that's what's happening right I still had not made that connection right and I do wonder whether that speaks to this kind of the lack of an an anti-war lens necessarily in media in media coverage of these kind of films um, and I I would like to see more of that kind of anti-war lens. Um, so, I mean, it was a Miyazaki that gave us one of the most perennially uh, useful screen caps ever, right? Better a pig than a fascist. It's so good. It's mm. so good. That's my guy. Yeah, go on. Go watch this movie. Go watch some of, of Miyazaki's other movies, especially the... Uh, the ones mediating on war, you know, uh, Nausicaa, Mononoke, Wind Rises, Porco Rosso. The man made some good movies. 
All right, that brings us about to the end of this discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, AnnaFam. Whether you're listening or reading along, we are so glad to have you. If you liked this podcast, you can find more from us by going to AnimeFeminist.com, where we've got articles and podcasts for your perusing pleasure. You can also go to our store at AnimeFeminist.com slash store, where we have cool stuff that you can get, like uh, Transmagical Girl stickers and watch more shoujo uh, mugs. They're very cute. If you really liked this, consider tossing us a dollar a month on Patreon or Coffee. Those uh, that money really, really helps us to keep doing what we do to pay our contributors and our editors, who all work extremely hard, and we constantly wish we could pay them more because they do good work, uh, and I am proud to work with them. You can also find us on social media. We are no longer on Twitter because it's a dumpster fire, but you can find us on Blue Sky, uh, MSTDN. Actually, you know, you can just go to uh, our link tree, which is linktree uh, slash anime feminist, but we are on Mastodon, Blue Sky, Inst- um, and Tumblr as anime feminist, and we are on TikTok and Instagram as anafem site. Thank you so much, Anna Fam, and we'll catch you next time. Happy New Year.